and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. This is the show where I pick up something sharp and pointy like a pitchfork and head off in search of the world's culture warriors who are out there fighting for our rights. We need those culture warriors more than ever as postmodernism and various collectivist ideologies tighten their clutches on civilization. Today, we are joined by a lawyer, former Liberal Party candidate, women's activist, writer and commentator, Catherine Deves. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on, Alexandra. It's great to be here. Oh, and look, Catherine, you are also part of the Why Can't Women Talk About Sex event in the New South Wales Parliament. Tell us what's happening in Canberra next month. So uh, I think it was a couple of months ago we had um, a, a panel of women who have been cancelled or are facing litigation or tribunals or sanctions for speaking about women's sex-based rights. So that was a huge success in New South Wales Parliament and we're going to be taking the show on the road to Canberra. So September 11, uh, we'll be inviting all the federal MPs to come and listen to women who have been punished for talking about what were com commonly understood facts up until five minutes ago. Well, that sounds like an event we should not miss. Now, Catherine, you've had an exceptionally diverse and busy career, <laughs> much of which has been conducted under the vicious eye of the Australian press. Before you decided to fling yourself into the nightmare of politics, you worked as a lawyer. So what was it about the young Catherine Deves that found herself attracted to the law? So I actually came to the law later in life. I'd given birth to my two twins. Prior to that, I'd mostly been in the wine industry in Australia and the United States. Um, but having two little girls, I decided I wanted to do something where I was going to be contributing to the community to have a job uh, where they could be proud of their mother. And I have uh, a lot of lawyers in my family. So with 18-month-old twins who hadn't slept, I thought it was a great idea to go off and uh, undergo a law degree. Um, I had my third baby halfway through and I worked uh, in, in a law firm as a paralegal uh, up until when I started practicing. And and I was only actually admitted a couple of years ago. Yes, well, I mean, after having that brilliant idea with three young children and let's throw into ourselves into law, you went, OK, well, how about we try politics in New South Wales? That sounds like it'll be fun. <laughs> and right at the beginning, it seemed that the whole thing was a bit of a nightmare when it came to politics in this state. Why did you decide to go there? I mean, did you lose your mind completely? <laughs> uh, look, I had moments where I questioned what I was doing, but I saw the state of politics uh, in Australia and I saw this debate, particularly around gender and the loss of women's sex-based rights, the intrusion into the family, the way our children were being targeted by those who want to indoctrinate them into bizarre ideas that divorce them from the reality of their bodies and it really wasn't being prosecuted very well uh, at, at a federal level. And I went and looked at the legislation um, with respect to the Sex Discrimination Act and realised they'd slotted gender identity in, I believe it was two days after my twins were born. And I thought that, you know, we need, someone needed to stand up uh, and bring this argument to the people. And I'd been talking about it in the context of sport previously, because I think that's where uh, the gender battle is most obvious. When we see giant biological males on, the sports field, in the pool, on the podium with women, um, very unfair. So I'd stood up to criticise those policies uh, and I felt that, you know, I'd been a Liberal voter 
most of my life and I wanted to join one of the major parties to see if I could affect change from within. And obviously we've got Zali Stegel in my electorate of Warringah uh, and they kept asking for someone to put up their hand to run against her and even though I've been um, a member of the party, I joined in years past but obviously three small children hadn't really worked out. Uh, so I rejoined and they kept saying, who wants to run in Warringah? And I thought, sure, why not? I'll put my hand up. <laughs> Yeah, that was, that was a mistake, clearly. I mean, you seem to be one of those rare politicians that wanted to make an actual difference in the world, which is not common, I have to say. Now, that would explain why the press pounced on you so badly. I'm sure you're expecting some media backlash. I mean, we all do. Being conservative women in politics, we're going to get a lot of online trolls. But were you prepared or expecting the intense hatred that came out of the left in those few months landing, you know, before the election, because they really did come after you. Look, Alexandra, I don't think anyone is really prepared to be the centre of a national media firestorm. But I, I don't regret it. I don't look at it as a mistake. It has changed my life for the better. It has galvanised me to fight harder and it brought this issue around the destruction of women's sex-based rights into the public consciousness in Australia. And up until then, a lot of the left media, the left commentators had just decided uh, to not talk about this issue at all and only present it from the perspective, particularly like the ABC or the SBS, uh, with no criticism whatsoever, no balance. It was all brave and stunning. It was all, you know, this is the next uh, civil rights movement. And anyone who criticises it uh, wasn't even mentioned. It wasn't even known to many people that there was an alternative viewpoint. So whether they liked it or not, people are now talking about this. Yeah, well, it might have sucked to be you know, the, the main bonfire in Australian politics. But what the struggle that you had in Warringah did, and I remember very clearly, it opened that conversation up to all the other electorates. So you may never have been able to win Warringah in that circumstance. Mm -hmm. But I think it really shifted the discussion toward your side of things because women who didn't realise what were happening were saying, hang on, why are our little girls having to compete against boys? It makes no sense. And that's probably uh, why you had so much attention because they knew that your discussion was actually very powerful. But I mean, when it comes to this social media stuff, people forget that you have everything you say and everything you type putting, being put under the most ridiculous level of scrutiny. And these keyboard trolls who wouldn't last five seconds in the spotlight decide they're going to crucify you for saying perfectly normal things. Now, personally, I view that as a sign of weakness from the left. I mean, they would not have done that if they weren't worried. Do you think that your side of this women's rights is winning the war because even the ABC came after you? Look, that's a bit of a, a tricky question because it feels like we take two steps forward and, you know, 10 steps back. There are certain jurisdictions around the world where they are winning. In, in Britain, they've managed to defeat gender identity ideology. In the US, it's state by state. Canada remains very captured. New Zealand remains very captured. Uh, so does Australia. So even though the electorate, I believe, the Australian people, like, you go down to the bus stop and you ask people, oh, do you believe that you know, the definition of sex has now evolved to just mean identity and has absolutely no bearing on whether you're male or female. Nobody's going to agree with that. But the problem is the activists are so embedded into our institutions, our government organisations, they're so well resourced 
by the government. They're effectively, you know, a lobbying arm for the transgender lobby. And many of them are set up as charities now. They receive huge funding. They've got people on salary. Uh, they've got volunteers. And all they do is lobby the government or write letters to complain about you to the media. Um, and now we're seeing in institutions and organisations that if you don't go along with this as an employee, you know, you could be reprimanded, you could be disciplined, you could be fired, uh, you certainly won't be going into any inner circles or being promoted should you stand up uh, and, and criticise this issue. So while I think the Australian public is on side with this, the people who make the decisions, the people who make the laws and the policy are very much pushing ahead uh, with policies that favour gender identity over sex. Well, that is all tied up in the ESG conversation where foreign uh, bureaucracies and boards are actually giving spe companies special uh, awards and privileges if they follow this, regardless of whether it's good for business or indeed even popular. But Catherine, I find it, I find it strange that the whole Me Too, uh, highly feminist you know, sort of conversation that we had in Australia 10 years ago. I mean, it was very pro-women when I was growing up, not even very long ago. Well, the public broadcaster and the left-leaning publications, they all abandoned the ideology of Me Too and feminism to fall on their swords for the transgender and the, uh, the new LGBT plus whatever ideology. Does that go to show that the principles of these publications and this left-wing thought isn't actually based on critical thinking because it's internally inconsistent and it changes one week to the next. Yeah, look, this is the backlash to feminism and the thinking, well, thinking around gender identity, you know, it's, it's very cult-like. If you step outside, if you question, you're a heretic, you will be uh, punished for that. You know, they have their mantras, you know, trans women are women, trans men are men, all non-binary identities uh, are valid. And they have all their insignia, they have their rainbow flags, they have, you know, the, the pink hair and the green hair, and it's quite obvious to see who the woke are. You can often look at someone and know whether they'd probably follow the woke ideology or, or whether um, they would not. Uh, and the way I see it is that this it really is a backlash to feminism because what a fantastic way to destroy women's rights by redefining women to include men. And when we include men in those definitions, when men are now able to avail themselves of pregnancy, discrimination protections, when they're able to come into our prisons, our hospital wards, you know, take our awards, sit on a panel and talk as if they're a woman. I mean, we even had uh, a man cosplaying a woman uh, who was one of Barbie's friends in the Barbie movie. I mean, it, well, it's- Catherine, they've even gone so far as to stitch women's wounds into men so they can carry children. I mean, it really is the complete takeover of women's spaces. That's that's exactly right. I mean, the Royal Women's Hospital at Randwick, uh, we have discovered that they are trying to recruit young women who think they're men to donate their uteruses uh, with the eventual aim of putting them into men who clearly have a pregnancy fetish and, and want to carry a child. So, I mean, this is a, a very good way to completely destroy women's rights by just making them meaningless because now they're applicable to everyone. Um, you know, the women no longer have the rights as based on their female physiology. And I think if we're going to talk about this, there was a reason that these rights existed in the first place. You know, we didn't just randomly segregate parts of our society based upon sex. It was done for a very good reason. In sport, it's obvious because if you want to have any kind of women's sport, 
you have to get rid of men out of the, uh, the section or you would never see women on the podium. That's just a, a biological fact of our reality. And when it comes to spaces like bathrooms and change rooms, well, I'm sorry, but women don't feel safe with men in those spaces, regardless of the actions of each individual man. Men as a, as a gender or a sex, whatever you want to say, they shouldn't be there with young girls and women. So have they forgotten why we did this in the first place? Or are they saying there is no argument for sex segregation? Yeah, I think they're saying that sex no longer exists. Sex is just an identity. And they use that, uh, you know, it's a very loaded word to say segregation. But as we know, you know, women didn't have sports 150 years ago. We didn't even have public toilets, public amenities. And I believe, you know, the first time they set up public toilets in Europe, the men set it on fire and knocked it over. You go to Old Parliament House here in Canberra and you go and find the women's, you go and actually have to seek out the women's toilets and it's a repurposed men's change room. So the reason we have access to those resources and those spaces is so that women can participate equally in public life. And as you rightly pointed out, um, you know, when we're in public life, we're going to, you know, the change rooms or the toilets. Women and children are uniquely vulnerable. So when we're in a state of undress, uh, we need to keep all the men out. Whether we like it or not, 99% of sex offenders are men. And the way that we keep women and children safe is keeping all men out of spaces where women and children are vulnerable. That is the easiest and safest safeguarding measure, most cost-effective safeguarding measure we could take as a society. So when I see these ideologues just pretending that this doesn't happen, I think, well, what position of privilege they must occupy to not even consider those women who now will self-exclude from going out because they've been traumatised or attacked or because they're ashamed of their bodies or they're going through, you know, pregnancy or maybe menopause. They don't want to be undressing around men um, when they're vulnerable. Women of faith, you know, those women will now self-exclude. So when we include men, we exclude women, which well, is inherently sexist in my view. Like it or not, sex segregation is not a social construct. Biology segregates us at birth. I mean, well, not even birth, at conception. <laughs> we are segregated by default. And you know, I, I'm going to use that word because it is true. Biology says, you're blokes, you're Sheilas, and there's going to be differences between the two of you. That's just how it is and you have to come to terms with that. But I'd like to return to Warringah because I find this seat a very a interesting sort of microclimate of the politics in Australia. Now, do you suspect that, you know, as the press say, the rejection of women's rights, you know, lost the seat of Warringah? Or do you think perhaps it had more to do with the strength of this cult-like teals that they've got down there where people were really voting about, you know, environmental uh, virtue and so they weren't really taking into consideration women's rights. So I would see Warringah as post-materialist. A lot of people are voting uh, based on virtue signalling, I would say, rather than issues like health or cost of living or aged care, uh, etc. And as everyone saw, I had a very limited amount of time. Uh, Zali had a very big war chest. She had an army of volunteers. You know, she was the incumbent. She had a full complement of paid staff. Um, and the result that my campaign managed to return, I think, is something that everyone who contributed can be very, very proud of considering um, what we are up against. And, you know, when it comes to Zali, I, she's nothing if not a fighter. 
So, you know, you look at what she would have had to overcome to go to the Olympics and win our first winter medal. So, you know, I can definitely acknowledge that with her. Um, but for us, I think we just had so many challenges. I mean, we were outspent about 10 to 1. So when it, it came down to just the numbers in that regard, we really had an, an uphill battle. And I think that, you know, Zali herself, she'll, she'll only vacate that seat. Um, when she's good and ready or when the electoral boundaries uh, get redrawn. But um, I think there is a further, like there's some quite interesting questions around, you know, the rise of the teal movement well, and the voters that they tapped into. Yeah, well, let's, I'd really like to have a chat about the teals because you and I have discussed this before and it's a fascinating topic. They are a phenomena that many people don't really understand, particularly male conservative politicians. It's not their fault. It's just a very particular ideology. Now, they know that you know, these people, they know what the teals stand for. They kind of get their religious mantra. But understanding why the teals are so popular in these seats is a, and so powerful in the minds of the blue ribbon liberal women, because it is blue ribbon liberal women who support the teals. That has to be understood if there's ever going to be a revolution against the teals. Now, you and I, Catherine, we're both North Shore private school girls. We come from the heart of this teal factory, correct? That's right. Uh, both ex-Abbotsley girls went to boarding school on the North Shore. Yep, I did grow up on the Central Coast, though, so I had a bit of a juxtaposition of socioeconomic uh, neighbourhoods growing up, yes. But when, you, when I scroll through my friends list now, it's either green or teal. Are you, are you finding that it's basically being colonised by a, a greenish ideology? Oh, absolutely. You know, when we have our catch-up lunches, we cannot talk about politics lest we come to blows. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's actually really kind of strange because we were all brought up with the same blue ribbon parents because all of our parents were conservative. They all voted for John Howard. Um, they all hated Keating. It was pretty much uniform. And so it's astonishing that all the children of that generation are now basically left wing. But I wanted to explain it this way and see if you agree with me. When I was at school, the radical eco-fascist ideology and extreme gender obsession had not started. No one was talking about gender. And sort of the only real eco-fascist thing we had was a bit of feel-good global citizen stuff put out by the United Nations. Um, oh, and we had a bit of David Attenborough. We used to watch those videos about the rainforest and we wanted to save the rainforest kind of thing. And the whole ozone layer. Is that sort of roughly where you're at? Uh, that's right. So gender was not a thing at all for me. Um, I came of age in the 90s and it, it didn't exist. It wasn't a conversation. No. And the climate cult wasn't, all, wasn't really there either. So all these things that drive the teal cult, we weren't really raised with them. But when uh, I remember when I was in year 11, that's when they changed geology to earth environmental sciences. And I realised that we were in trouble then. But that was really late on in the thing. But I bring this up because even though the propaganda seemed light, there was an insidious ideology that you and I were both exposed to through school. And that's that constant message that we are going to be young global citizens who are going to save the world. And part of being a female in the world is this saviour complex. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Smashing the glass ceiling was uh, a frequent topic at school. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, do you have any, like, do you, do you think that sort of has permeated your life and your friends' lives or do you think they cling on to that more than you? Look, there are some friends in my social circle who have smashed the glass ceiling. Um, but I think, you know, with 
people in our circles who are greens and teals, particularly with the women, my view is that what happened was we were told we could, uh, you know, save the world. We went and had these incredible educations. So we went off to uni. We went and did, you know, really complicated degrees. We went and got, um, you know, we became doctors and lawyers and, and all that kind of thing. And then we met someone and we had some kids and we got the house on the North Shore or the Northern Beaches. And then you're trying to do the juggle. And even though women's participation in the workforce has gone up, we know that the division of domestic labour and emotional labour within the home still largely falls on the woman. So you've got these women who are sort of getting into their 40s and 50s. They've been successful in their careers or maybe they've gone on the mummy track to take a back seat to their husband's careers or maybe stepped away from paid work altogether. And they suddenly have an epiphany once you sort of get out of those early baby years and you don't have baby brain, oh, look what I forgot to do. I forgot to save the world. So you've got the teals who have come in selling participation in this huge movement. And what the teals did was they went and did, you know, that kitchen table model where you sit down, you, you do the data, you find the three hot topics, the three top uh, issues that impact people in that electorate and you have that those kitchen table conversations and you sell inclusion in a movement so these people feel like they're changing the world so the women who are glommed onto this are the women who are told they could change the world but by and large because of the juggle they kind of forgot to do it and it's it's funny because that's exactly exactly what I had written here because these powerful and special women who it, it's hard to explain, but the way they do that to you in school, this message is in every topic, it's in every activity that you do, it is drilled into you almost like a religious pursuit where you can't have it, you're not achieving your self realization as a woman or as a person unless you find a way to save the world. So if you've gone off and led an ordinary life, you've married wealthy, you've had your kids, you know, you've got your house, your, your children are in private school. Well, suddenly you're sitting there at the cafe with the other mums and you, you, didn't, you didn't save the world. It doesn't matter if you had a career, but you're a failure as far as the mantra you were told at school, especially if their kids are coming home and saying, mummy, I'm going to save the world. That would just bring it back home to these women. So this cycle is what the Teagles have tapped into. And I worry that the only way that you're ever going to find people de-radicalised from this worldview of being a saviour is if the topic and the product that the Teagles are selling is found to be repulsive. Like, do you think that might be how we get out of this? If they see wind turbines on their favourite beaches and they go, you know what, I don't want to be associated with that. I think you're probably right, Alexandra, because the Teals, I mean, let's face it, they're basically agents for Labor. Um, you know, when Labor came into the majority, it was sort of like, well, just like that, the Teals became irrelevant. Uh, however, they do go in with Labor and they tinker around the edges of the legislation and they're allowed to have a little bit of input and they're allowed to be seen to be doing something. But obviously we're getting to the point now where these teals want to be let off the leash. And so this is why they're going out and saying these outlandish things about, you know, getting rid of gas and coal and just really ridiculous. And I think um, as we can see our society really struggling with like energy security, energy affordability, cost of living, when those things really start to hit home and we can't, you know, be voting on things that make us feel good or things that are virtuous. And we see these teals who are pushing policies that are undermining uh, 
these things that allow this country to be wealthy, whether it's like farming, mining, resources, uh, who are focusing on things like wind turbines, which are increasingly being exposed for the scam that they are, uh, blighting the landscape, being driven by diesel generators in Scotland, uh, all the rest of it, as people, more and more people start to wake up to that. And this is the, the products that the teals continue to peddle. I think people are going to get sick of it uh, and look to the party uh, that has the robust economic policies, to be well, honest. Don't forget, if you ever run again, Catherine, to do what they did to us in school and take the <laughs> photographs of the terrible lithium mines, take the cobalt mines and the children in Africa who you know, are down there covered in mud, throw those out to the electorate and uh, that might actually win you the seat next time. <laughs> Oh, yes. Look, uh, I mean, running in Warringah again, I'm not really sure. If <laughs> oh, go on, be. go on. I mean, just throw yourself in the shred. It'll be fine. Well, <laughs> I don't think anything can be uh, as bad as the media firestorm last time. But one thing that I would do differently is I would get out there on the front foot and I would answer those difficult questions. I, I would allow myself to be put in the hot seat and be grilled. Yes, well, that would make you a far better politician than any of our current sitting MPs, including our Prime Minister, Albanese, who can't even decide how long the uh, Uluru Statement from the Heart is supposed to be. But uh, you'd think that women's rights would be enough of a cause for the North Shore blue ribbon seats to be won back by Liberals. But you've been fighting women's rights for years. Although I must say, the nature of the fight that you're being forced to do today is probably not what you envisioned. I mean, did you think you would be arguing to keep men out of women's sports when you started this fight? Or has this sort of gone a little bit off track? Oh, completely off track. You know, I, when the, the twins were born and then my youngest Cordelia, I started reading up again on feminism because I thought oh, I'd really brush up on this if I've got three daughters. And then I saw how, uh, deranged liberal feminism had become where they're pushing like porn and pushing prostitution and which are inherently dangerous uh, and harmful for women and then stumbled onto the transgender argument and realised that, you know, lesbians were being coerced to have sex with men who were wearing dresses and uh, that was a bit of my, as we call it, peak trans moment and then just reading more and more and then realising that our definition of woman was under attack, realising that gender identity in policy was now overriding sex in terms of, you know, segregation for sport. And often, like, I've been accused by people where they say, well, why aren't you fighting for, you know, victims of domestic violence or victims of homicide? And my response to that would be, if we cannot define what a woman is, if we cannot ensure that she has a safe space to go if she's fleeing domestic violence, then what you're doing doesn't really matter. Because, well, I mean, it does, but if, if we can't have our words, if we can't have our spaces, then the rest of it is kind of pointless. Yes, I remember when I was very young, we were asked to decide, you know, which political conversations and which moral ideas had been settled that we weren't going to have to fight again. And one of those was free speech, that the, the idea was that the war had been won in the West, that free speech was a protected right that should be absolute. And here we go again, when I was in my late 20s, I realised that I couldn't even continue writing my fiction because suddenly what you could and couldn't say was being controlled by social media mobs and shortly thereafter, legislation. Now, if we don't win the fight to preserve free speech, you won't even be able to argue the definition of a woman. 
That's correct. If Alex Greenwich's uh, legislation that he is putting forward next week comes to fruition, we are anticipating that he will be fortifying hate speech and vilification laws in New South Wales. This conversation uh, could become verboten, Alexandra. Um, there are people being sued for, what? Well, sorry, that's not quite the right word, sorry. Uh, people who are facing vilification charges, uh, Louise Elliott down in Tasmania for standing up and, and saying what a woman is. Um, so these sorts of conversations are, are just, are they going to be, be outlawed? But what we're forgetting also in Australia is we don't necessarily have, uh, you know, protected free speech in the way that they do in the United States. We have the implied right to political communication. Um, and yes, this is an inherent, uh, you know, basic human right to have freedom of speech, but it is not as broad as what it is in America. So, you know, we simply can't be complacent with these freedoms. We can't just accept that this has been, these battles have been fought and won because there will always be people seeking to control others and seeking to encroach upon, the, upon those fundamental freedoms to assume power for themselves. So we, we just can't be complacent. Well, interestingly, if you want to know how far this society has fallen, well, there's a reason that there's no free speech laws in Australia, and that's because the people who founded this country did not believe that they would require them because they assumed that free speech was just agreed upon generally as a concept. You know, like, you know, then that's, they were mistaken. They should have realised that uh, the rise of authoritarianism is almost a given in every society and you have to protect against it. But I, I remember you wrote a cover piece for The Spectator Australia in which you said, and I quote, it is a chief terrible shame the chief legacy of our first female Prime Minister seems to be her so-called misogyny speech, the sentiment of which certainly resounds with most women. Have you been disappointed with the female leadership in this country? Because I know I sighed in dismay when Julie Bishop's red shoes were donated to the political museum. I mean, of all the contributions a woman could make, did it have to be the red shoes? I mean, Thatcher's remembered for her great wit and speeches and we get, we get shoes. Yeah, that is uh, really disappointing and it was disappointing that uh, it was under Gillard's watch that the gender identity got pushed through, but we can't underestimate that Mark Dreyfus was in it up to his neck and now he's our Attorney General again. So um, in terms of looking at the loss of, of women's rights, I, ha I have no doubt that he's sort of got his fingers all over it <laughs> again. But yes, you know, it, when we look at people like uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and the greats, such as her, it is really disappointing that in this particular fight, I mean, we've got Claire Chandler in the Senate who stood up, we've got Pauline Hanson uh, who has stood up, but you know, the deafening silence from many of the rest of them, uh, we've got Moira Deeming down in Victoria, of course, but that deafening silence, I mean, it's really starting to hurt. Well, I mean, even some of history's great female monarchs had better track records of contribution than some of our politicians today. It seems like we've lost the fierceness of spirit from womanhood as we've tried to make women more like men, which is always a mistake. We shouldn't be trying to do that. But let's talk about the Sex Discrimination Act. Has the changing of that had a run-on effect and is it still impacting our politics? Oh, absolutely. So gender identity was slotted in in 2013. There is a constitutional and statutory construction argument that it is not valid. Um, the Sex Discrimination Act was enacted to uh, enliven 
CEDAW, which is the United Nations Convention for the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, to which we are a signatory. Now, that is the key human rights instrument for women's rights, and that is based on our female physiology. It is based on the fact we have been historically discriminated against because of our role in human reproduction and that we were seen as just chattel for marriage, etc. So, when they slotted in gender identity, there is no mention in CEDAW of gender identity. Uh, to change an instrument such as that, you need to have the consent of all the signatories. And I can guarantee that the, you know, nearly 190 countries who've signed that document, there is not going to be consensus on inserting, you know, performance of gender stereotypes to override biological sex. So nevertheless, it's sitting there in our legislation. Um, there is a case at the moment, Tickle versus Giggle, uh, that is going to be testing that tension between um, sex and gender identity. Because what's happened in practice is that when they put in policies, uh, gender identity is presumed to override sex. So with respect to sex, uh, sorry, with respect to sport, uh, the Australian Human Rights Commission and Sport Australia put out a policy saying that sports categories are going to be on the basis of gender identity, not sex. Uh, Kieran Perkins spearheaded uh, a policy that just came out recently saying for elite sport, uh, men are just going to have to lower their testosterone levels uh, to a level that's about commensurate with the highest females for two years. But, you know, women are not a hormone level. Women are not a chemically castrated man. I think it is grossly insulting to women to pretend that men can just alter their hormones and suddenly they can identify their way into our sex. So uh, in practicality, we might be being told that we have sex-based rights and protections, but as they play out, that's not true at all. Well, I, I've had a lot of conversations with people like this on the internet, of course, but it's a great place to, to test out the ideology online. And you can pretty much get an agreement from most of these high-profile activists that sex is a biological reality and it is there's only male and female. You can get most of them to agree that there is some kind of reality. Otherwise, transitioning makes no sense. They have to concede, concede that point. They then say, but gender expre expression is like a social construct. It's how you feel, it's how you dress, etc. But sports aren't divided on how you feel. Sports are divided on biological sex. So it makes no sense to me that sport is saying we're going to take your felt gender identity and apply that to a, an area of our civilization that is segregated via sex, by a biological reality. So it's not, their argument is in, internally inconsistent. It's incoherent in a way. Now, America has started to realize that. The UK has realized that. They've wound back a lot of their so-called inclusive policies for men in women's sports. Do you find it surprising that Australia has not learned its lesson from these other countries and, and taken on board their lessons? Well, look, there are other countries like Germany and Spain who have also declined to embed sex self-ID into law. And recently I went over to a conference in Denver uh, called ICONS, which is the International Consortium for Female Sports. And there were some really big names in this movement who were there. And one of the themes that, that kept coming up when I'd be chatting to people was, what the hell is going on in Australia and New Zealand? We thought you guys would have been the last to fall for this. We thought that you were no nonsense and you didn't put up with BS. And yet here you are falling hook, line and sinker for this insane ideology. 
Um, and I'm inclined to agree with them. I don't quite know what happened, Alexandra. I think also with what happened with COVID, I think many of us have been really shocked at how compliant um, Australians are, how we've many people have just set aside their critical thinking skills and are allowing these ideologies, also critical race theory that's happening around the voice. Um, to, we're just allowing the government, these authoritarians and the extreme left to just run roughshod over us. And I fear, I, I think, how far is this going to have to go before the general population stand up and go, actually, we've had enough of this, this interference into our lives, this intrusion into our family life, telling us what to think, what to say, indoctrinating our children. At some point, the Australian population is going to have to stand up and say no. Unless, of course, they want to live in a fascist state. <laughs> well, one thing I find particularly interesting is that it is very difficult to argue absurdity. So if you're presented with something that is, you know is wrong, but you have to actually sit there and prove that it's incorrect, it can be quite tricky. Now, you see this when someone comes up and says, the earth is flat, prove me wrong. Well, it's hard for people to go back and list all of the reasons why that argument is incorrect. I mean, aside from taking someone up into space and just showing them, it's difficult. And that's what happens when someone says, a woman can have a penis. You go, well, no, but you have to sit there and go back and argue things that you would never assume you have to argue. And that causes a lot of floundering. A lot of people won't engage with those arguments because they're so ridiculous to begin with. And so I find that might be part of the reason why it was allowed to go on for so long and get so far in society because it was so absurd, people just didn't even try and argue it. Yeah, look, I mean, the left is really good at manipulating language. I think we can see that. And when you are starting to untether definitions from reality, um, and particularly in the, in the gender argument, I mean, they're definitions that come up that are just absurd. Like, you can't even define gender identity. It's, it's essentially uh, an expression of stereotypes, it's name, mannerisms or dress. But I think for most of us, you know, some of us have unisex names or, you know, we wear jeans one day and a, a dress the next. So how can you, you know, codify law that's based on something as ephemeral as as dress or, or mannerism? So it means, well, I've, I've, you know, a man flicks his hair and all of a sudden, He's a woman, you know, he's got a female gender identity and then his rights not to be discriminated against override sex. So, yeah, when you really bastardise the language and you confuse people and you introduce words like trans and cis and non-binary um, and you're not allowed to speak plainly anymore, as we've discussed, then it makes it really difficult to have these arguments. Well, a woman dressed up as a very convincing bloke for a stage show or whatever is still not a guy. They're just a woman dressed up as a bloke. I mean, you can't change what's inherently part of you. And the same thing is true of if you take the someone, a man who's injured, say he loses his bits and is an injury, well, he's not suddenly not a dude. Like, he, this stuff is, <laughs> is, well, I'm trying to speak as plainly as I can, but that doesn't change you, who you are and who you were born as. I mean, this is, we all knew this as little as five years ago, this was not something you would have to argue. It seems to me that we've gone beyond the idea of gender equality. We've gone beyond the upscaling to female supremacy, because there was a while there where feminism tried to basically push men right down. And now we seem to be in this era, Catherine, where men are the new women. It's almost like we've returned to the patriarchy. Yes, it is the most grotesque misogyny when you have men who can cosplay as women and then who claim to be better women than the actual women. 
um, simply because they're able to, you know, maybe perform the stereotypes better. Uh, as you rightly pointed out, you know, a woman, you know, a woman who's suffering infertility or had a hysterectomy, she she is still a woman. And you or I, if we get up and we put on a, a boiler suit and don't brush our hair, we will still be a woman. Yeah, we both had some pretty <laughs> interesting days, but we were still <laughs> girls, even though we weren't wearing the makeup and our hair wasn't done. You know, it doesn't change your your sex and your gender. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's absolutely right. And, you know, I've never had a problem with gender nonconformity. Like with my little girls, I let them wear whatever they want, do whatever they want to their hair. That's not a problem. But it feels like we're really regressing. You know, you've got a child, a boy who wants to play with Barbies or a girl who wants to wear, you know, overalls. I mean, if you're in the inner west now, that would be, yay, my child's trans. Um, and off you go on, on that journey instead of saying, well, most of us, to one degree or another, uh, are gender nonconforming. Um, so imposing these really strict sex regressive stereotypes, I feel we're actually going backwards. Well, isn't it basically reducing women and men to a stereotype? I mean, it, it's sort of like back in, let's say, the 1800s or the 1700s, where if you didn't wear exactly what society told you to wear, well, it was big trouble. But now if a little girl decides she wants to put on some jeans and run around in the mud for a while, which a lot of tomboys actually do and turn into gorgeous superstars, I mean, that's just how life goes. Well, they're in danger of being taken up by the activist mob and by their teachers, being removed from their parents and being set down a line of medicalization and permanent uh, dependency on an ideology that could very well harm their physical bodies. I mean, this is so serious. I find it frustrating that people write this off as some kind of just a political movement. But we're talking about real children who are convinced that they need to reject their biological bodies and to perform as a different gender in order to make peace with themselves. I mean, it's actually horrifying. Yeah, teaching children to disassociate from the reality of their bodies, um, you know, I mean, that's a breakdown in safeguarding, uh, in, in my view, and teaching kids that, you know, if you feel a particular way means that you're the opposite sex, and then obviously we've got this whole, you know, medical pharma push to sell these drugs and sell these surgeries because, as we all know, uh, the people following this debate, we know once a child is set on that pathway, they very rarely get off and they are set up as medical patients, you know, for life. Uh, and it does. It robs them of their fertility, their ability to have uh, normal sexual functioning. It impacts cognitive development. They get osteoporosis, cancers, etc. So, I mean, I think we can all foreshadow that there are going to be legions of lawsuits in the future um, because of, you know, this ideology that has been pushed on children. Well, as a parent, does that worry you even more? Do you worry about having your kids uh, in the hands of potentially an ideology that would try and do that to them? Because, uh, I mean, it makes me consider homeschooling. I mean, I have never considered that, but some of these things are, are physically dangerous to children's lives. Oh, I agree. I have the homeschooling conversation at least once a week when the children come home with some, you know, crackpot idea that they've been ex exposed to at school. But this is where you have to be involved in your kids' lives. You have to talk about everything. So, you know, I've taught my kids that, with respect to the gender uh, movement, that, it, that it's lies. Um, so when something crops up at school, they will tell me, and if I feel it's sufficiently alarming enough, I'll, I'll go and speak to their teacher or I'll go and speak to their principal. 
um, and I'll, I'll complain or I'll say, I don't want them watching that show for these reasons. Um, I withdraw consent for them to watch behind the news on ABC. I don't care if they sit outside in colour, but that's just an indoctrination show. Um, so you really do have to be on top of it. But of course, as kids grow up, you know, it's natural for them to want to rebel against uh, their parents and kids are online so much. That's the other thing. You've got to know what they're looking at online. You've got to encourage keep them off the screens, get them involved in sport, play games, colour in, play in the backyard, all the stuff we grew up sport doing. Sport without boys though, right? So you give yep. <laughs> It's. Uh, I, I remember I actually wrote myself an exclusion letter from supporting Amnesty International because uh, I didn't want to be part of that political grift at school. But tell us a bit about your organisation that you founded uh, for women's sports because I think that's a, a great step in the right direction. So we set this up, myself uh, and Roe Edge over in New Zealand uh, and a few other women. Um, uh, New Zealand was already facing issues with the policies over there for sport, but here, um, when it was the Australian Human Rights Commission and Sport Australia who put out their policy that overrode sex uh, with gender identity for sporting policies, including allowing people to use the change rooms and toilets and overnight accommodation of their choice. And then should you raise a concern, it would be you or your daughter who would be kicked out of the sports team. And I realised this was just being sold as brave and stunning and the next step forward. Uh, and there didn't really appear to be an organised uh, like movement against it. So we just uh, joined forces um, with the New Zealand women, so Save Women's Sports Australasia, and we just started uh, writing letters, lobbying politicians, uh, using social media, uh, trying to you know, have interviews uh, on the media, writing articles, etc., to raise awareness that there was uh, another viewpoint. Well, and can people still support this? And if so, how can they do that? So Save Women's Sports, uh, we're on socials. Uh, so if people wish to donate, the New Zealand arm is set up for uh, accepting donations. Uh, there are also other groups around the world. So Icons is a really good one to watch in the United States. Uh, Riley Gaines is affiliated with Icons uh, and they've managed to push through Save Women's Sports legislation in over 22 different states. Um, so it's quite encouraging seeing what they're doing over there. But what we're hoping here in Australia is that a case, say with Tickle versus Giggle, might give us clarity on this fight between gender identity and sex. And you know, this is going to be a zero-sum case. It's either going to be gender identity, men identifying as women, who will be able to uh, be paramount in their rights, or women and their sex-based rights. So we are hoping it is decided in favour of the women, and then hopefully it solves this problem uh, of men with a gender identity intruding into our spaces. And do you just want to remind our viewers about what's going on in Canberra again, just so they can make sure they get involved? Uh, so this will be on September 11. Uh, the cancelled women will be getting up and asking, why can't women talk about sex anymore? So, yeah, watch it here on ADH TV. <laughs> yeah, so you can watch it exactly, you can watch it right here and you can download the app and watch it on your phone anywhere you like. But also, I'd like to ask you uh, one of these final questions because the world is very confusing. The West doesn't seem to know what it thinks or what it feels or where the truth lies. Is there even a kind of truth? I mean, this is the era of truth telling in a postmodernist world where there is no such thing as truth. It's very confusing. What do you see as the future for women in this age of progressive ideology? Is the tide pulling us one way or another? Do you think it's going to get worse or is there going to be a full backlash and a restoration of women's rights? 
I suspect it's going to get worse before it gets better. Uh, but I have full faith that there will be a correction. There absolutely has to be. We cannot deny the reality of our bodies. And women obviously play such a critical role in human reproduction that that just cannot be denied. Wonderful. And finally, where can we find you if we want to support just you? So I'm just still on Twitter uh, and Facebook and Instagram. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Catherine Deves. It was a real pleasure to hear you and to hear you speak about women's rights. So thank you for coming on our show. Thank you so much for having me, Alexandra. And that's all we have time for. Catch you next week.